morning. And thank you very much for uh, moving up 15 minutes in order to make this possible, because I do have to be out of here promptly to go to Shari Shammai and speak there. So um, I apologize. Conflicts happen. So last time... Uh, for those who don't have the sheets there by the, uh, by the, by the hot water. Um, last time we started on Operation Moses, Operation Solomon, the, uh, the bringing of Ethiopian Jewry to Israel. And we started out with a citation from a 9th century work, the book of Eldad Hadani, who claimed to be uh, from the tribe of Dun, detailing how other tribes came to be in Ethiopia. And he said that it, this was a combination, actually, the more I look at it, the more I realize it's a combination of the tribe of Dun, who went there to avoid having to participate in a war, a civil war in Israel between the north and the south under Yeravim ben Nevat. So they left, they went there, then other tribes joined them. And then within the text itself, this is relevant to what we talked about last time, he also mentions that they had B'nai Moshe Rabbeinu descendants of Moses there. So if you remember the discussion we had last time about Moses' missing years, how he flees Egypt roughly the age of 20, and then he comes back at the age of 80, and what happened in those interim years? Is he just a shepherd for 60 years? And the idea in the Midrash that says that we have a biblical reference to him having an Ethiopian wife, maybe he was in Ethiopia during this time, so apparently Eldad Adani has a tradition that not only did he have an Ethiopian wife and spend time in Ethiopia, but he actually had kids while he was in Ethiopia, and those are, uh, are also among the Jews who are there, according to this fellow Eldad Adani, and we noted some skepticism already early on uh, regarding trusting the text and then we, uh, we talked a little bit about the ten lost tribes before coming to the question of, so do you trust the authenticity of this book that says that in fact the people who are living there who are practicing something Jewish or quasi-Jewish are actually Jewish. And we noted that in the 16th century, Rabbi David Ibn Abi Zimra in Spain, Radbaz, has a practical question of Jewish law that relates to their status of these Ethiopian Jews, and he accepts indeed that they are Jewish. But you don't really have much interaction with them, first of all, until that moment in time, because they're off in Ethiopia. And even after that, you don't see all that much until the 1860s. And what happens in the 1860s, as we noted last time, is that the Christians start missionizing in that area. They want to convert people in that area to Christianity. Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer in Germany, uh, among others, says that's terrible. We can't have them missionizing. These people are Jewish. And so they start to send people to teach them. And we had the letter of last time from Rav Cook that, uh, that also supported the idea of sending teachers to them. Um, two notes that I wanted to mention, uh, one note that I wanted to mention from last time. A, uh, someone asked at the end, what are the differences uh, in practice between the Jews in Ethiopia and, uh, and, and traditional Judaism? So we had said last time that they don't have the Talmud. And their claim is they split off from the Jewish people before there was a written Talmud, and that's why they don't, uh, they don't have it. But I noted for you on the sheet uh, an article, source number one, from the Jewish agency called New Ethiopian Olim Construct First Tefillin. They didn't have Tefillin. That's a major one when you think about it. First of all, because we know that Jews have been doing it for thousands of years. We have we, you know, the, the famous find at Masada of pairs of tefillin that you had going back a couple of thousand years. It's prescribed biblically. 
and they don't have it. So here it describes how they're actually learning to make tefillin and to, uh, to wear them. And then I brought you source number two, very interesting article, a, uh, a contention that some are making that actually their practices and what they have mirror those of the Dead Sea cult, the group that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. What's really interesting about that is that we don't know who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves. And there, uh, there's a great variance. Uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, well, there's, there are different opinions among historians and scholars about who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Were they Jewish? Were they a sect of Jews? Were they early Christians? They, um, they, they, there are different schools of thought there, but some of their practices, according to this thing, way of thinking, I brought it in source number two, is that actually um, their practices resemble those of the Dead Sea cult. But there are differences, certainly. The book of Eldad Hadani spends a lot of time talking about a, uh, an esoteric area of Jewish law, and that's the laws of kosher slaughter, of shechita. How it can be kosher, how it could be bad, what happens if you open up the animal and you find certain types of defects inside the animal. That's what a lot of the, uh, the book there focuses on. But now that we've recovered them and we see what their practices are, it's very easy to see differences on a broader scale. Nonetheless, early 20th century, they're still viewed as Jews. That tends to be the way that they are, uh, the way that they are looked at. So that when the state of Israel is formed, and remember the declaration of the state of Israel initially talks about kibbutz goliot, gathering in the exiles, the expectation is they're coming home. And the Ethiopians think that they are coming home. That's what they anticipate. Take a look at source number three, please. This is from a paper that was really a pre-paper. This woman, Meital Regev, is a student of Professor Avi Picard, who has done a lot of work on different aliyot, different groups that came to Israel from various uh, areas of the diaspora, and some of the issues that they encountered. So she's a doctoral student of his, and this paper was sort of a, uh, a, a proposal for research. Um, you can see, from policy of suspend to policy of immigration, that's her title for the, uh, for the paper, the Israeli policy towards Ethiopian Jews, 1948 to 1984. And she writes, beginning in, this is my translation, beginning in 1948, discussions were held in a broad range of institutions in Israel regarding bringing Ethiopian Jews. In a report from the Division of Education and Torah Culture in the Diaspora of the Jewish Agency in 1952, it was written explicitly that the tribe of Falasha is the most important Jewish tribe. And again, as we said last time, Falasha is not considered to be a uh, complementary term now, but again, in the 1940s, 1950s, and really up until you hit the, the 80s, and when they actually came to Israel and, and, uh, and people were exposed to them, until then, Falasha was just the term that people used. They thought it was a tribal identity. Uh, outcast, I believe. So, they, uh, so it was written explicitly there. They were saying, the Jewish agency said, they are the most important Jewish tribe. We have to bring them home. Because of this, in 1953, the Zionist leadership began acting via the Jewish agency to draw the Ethiopian community close to Israel on one hand and rabbinic Judaism on the other. This was done by sending rabbinic emissaries to teach the community traditions and orthodox law as practiced in Israel. In parallel, the Jewish agency opened schools to teach Hebrew, Judaism, and general professions. All so far so good, right? Except they didn't come until 1984. What happened? In 1957, the Jewish agency closed the schools and stopped sending emissaries to the community. Why? 
what, what happened in 57? And the answer is, it wasn't really what happened in 1957. It was what happened in 1951. But you know the way bureaucracy works. So things take a while to develop. What happens in 1951 is Rabbi Yitzhak Halevi Herzog, chief, rabbi, uh, chief Ashkenazi rabbi of the state of Israel, is asked the question, how do we view these Ethiopians who have some Jewish practices and not others? They don't wear tillin. They don't do certain things. Their marriage rituals don't look like what we view as classic rituals. On the other hand, they claim Jewish heritage. And look, we have literature in the 16th century referring to a text from the 9th century which records that a Gaon, the leading scholar of the time, said that they recognized as Jewish. And Rabbi Herzog has a problem which we referred to last week, which is calling them Jewish may create more problems. Because if they're not Jewish... So it's very easy. They can convert to Judaism and join and be accepted. Whereas, if they are Jewish, I want to know, were their marriages and divorces done properly? If the divorces weren't done properly and then they remarried, you have issues of mamzer, issues of illegitimacy. People who converted to Ethiopian Judaism, if there were converts there, would not have been converted according to a generally recognized practice. You create more problems, effectively, potentially, by identifying them as Jews. So look at what Rabbi Herzog writes in source number four. This is a piece from a letter that he sent in 1954. The ruling was 1951, but this is a piece from a letter from 1954. Look what he says. This is, again, my translation of it. He says, I have been very, very interested in the letter he sent me, the the person who was corresponding with him who is working on bringing the Ethiopians. And he says, May your hands be strengthened. May you practice wise counsel to draw the falashas near to the source of Israel. It will be a great mitzvah to aid in this sacred work. He is very on board with bringing the Ethiopians to Israel. He wants them brought. But... There is a very interesting practical halachic issue related to marriage among Jews. The main question is whether they are descendants of converts or from the seed of the house of Israel. Just the opposite. If they are descendants of converts, this will make their status more lenient. We're better off if we view them as Ethiopians who have tried to take on Judaism and not as people who were born from Jews. That's what he says in 1951. Now, that leads the government to say, maybe we don't need to bring them. Maybe we could just leave them where they are. Why would the government want to do that? Well, that brings us to Avi Picard's point in source number five. With the establishment of the state, the Zionist leadership declared that it would enable every willing Jew to ascend to Israel. That's what they said at the outset. Law of return and so on. Opposite this promise, in the first decade, a policy of selective aliyah was established leading to suspension of Aliyah for some Olim, some who would have come, who deserved under the law of return to ascend to Israel. Further stereotypes and prejudice toward North African Jewry developed, leading to social polarization. What happens is, there's a general issue. In the early states, you don't have the infrastructure to be able to absorb however many people show up. And so, separate from the Ethiopian issue, 1951, 52, 53, they start to implement a policy which prioritizes aliyah of people who are young and able, aliyah of people who are going to be able to take jobs and do work and build up the society, and they start to slow down 
the aliyah of people who they feel are going to be more of a drain on their resources as opposed to able to contribute. Well, into that, you get a letter saying, you know, they may not be Jewish at all, and here they're coming from a very different culture. For them to blend in will be difficult. And you have the reality that there are going to be prejudices and biases, certainly from the Jews who are coming in from Eastern Europe and even from Western Europe. Right? The ones who are coming in from North Africa probably will not have the same impression, but for all I know they would. But certainly the Ashkenazi Jews are going to walk into this with a level of bias. And that is what some papers have alleged on this, is that that's what causes the slowdown. So I heard Sock said, bring them. He said, you should bring them. With Jewish or non-Jewish, you should bring them. We're going to figure out what to do. And in fact, take a look at source number six. A paper I quoted last week, Rabbi J. David Bleich, 1972, makes it very clear at the outset of his paper, he's talking about the Ethiopian Jews as well as other groups that claim to be black Jews. In the United States, there have been various Christian groups over time that have claimed to be black Jews. As he notes in the paper, though, those groups tend to be Christian and tend to make claims along the lines of, we are the only true Jews. So, why he needed to write an entire paper about them, Rabbi Life does things like that. The, um, but the beginning of his paper is about the Ethiopians. And he says, Judaism is colorblind. Skin pigmentation is unknown as a halachic concept. The problem of determining the status of the various communities of black Jews is totally unrelated to color. The sole issue is that of Jewish identity. And then I brought you a piece of a poem I couldn't resist. Rabbi Shlomo Abiner a major rabbi in the religious Zionist camp in Israel, wrote a poem. I only translated the opening part of the poem. It's a long poem. Uh, but the poem is called Kadima Yotzei Ethiopia Heidad B'ma'ala, which is a play on a rallying cry of B'nai Akiva. Kadima B'nai Akiva. Forward B'nai Akiva. Heidad B'ma'ala. Heidad is sort of a cry of let's go. The uh, So... He, he turns it towards the Ethiopians, and he says, Onward, Ethiopian migrant, Hedad on the ascent. Do not ask why I involve myself. I am not Ethiopian. But this is not correct. In truth, I am not Ethiopian. But I am also not non-Ethiopian. Similar, simply, I am Jewish, like you. I do not care what color your skin is, especially when it seems the color of my ancestors was like your color. As is explained in Mishnah Negaim chapter 2, I'll explain that in a second, but across generations it turned white for various reasons that don't interest me. The, uh, what he's talking about is the law of Tzara'at. There's a biblical law of Tzara'at, which describes a certain skin condition, which is supposed to be manifest a spiritual affliction. And the Talmud discusses how you recognize and identify marks on the skin in a volume called Nega'im, which means wounds. That's what the section means. And he says, as he reads that section of the Talmud, it indicates that our skin, Jewish skin originally, was black. And so he says, the truth of the matter is, I looked, uh, I, you, know, you, are, you, you are more legit, more authentic in that sense, than I am. So the halachic calculation is not influenced by color. But the social calculation, unfortunately, may well have that, uh, that influence. And so the result of it is that the wheels of Ethiopia and Aliyah basically come to a halt from the 1950s until 1973. In 1973, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, Sephardic chief rabbi at the time, gives a ruling that they are, in fact, Jewish. 
And at that point, things start again. In 1977, they start sending teachers again. There were political issues as well with the Ethiopian government that, uh, that complicated matters. It ultimately takes 11 years until they brought in first Operation Moses in 1984 and then Operation Solomon in, uh, in, 1991. So, there are other issues that are involved, and there's more to discuss about the whole process. Um, but I think this is a major event in Israeli history, both in terms of bringing so many Jews to, to Israel, um, but also in terms of the, what it reflects, the tension between, on the one hand, saving the Jewish people, and saying, they need, to, you know, they need our help, let's bring them. And then on the other hand saying, we need to build up the country and what's going to be best for the state? And can we bring everybody we, uh, we wish to bring? The Declaration of Independence may speak of this ingathering of the exiles, but the execution has not always been, uh, has not always been, been clear. Clear? I apologize, I'm going so quickly with it, and I'm not even going to be able to take questions. I see your hand, Marlene, but I just, knowing that I have to leave at 10.45, and that we have a whole other topic still to see, um, I think what I'm going to do is, I'm going to go through the second topic properly, I hope, and then take questions at the end if there's time before 10.45 for me to take the questions. And again, I apologize. I think we learn better when there's a conversation. I know I learn better when there's a conversation. But, um, but, but this is what I am uh, dealing with today. Okay.